It's February 9th, 2024. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, the podcast is brought to us by Led Zeppelin, Linda Ronstadt, and the British band Ace. What? Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven, we're talking about uric acid levels. You're no good talking about telemedicine. And how long? Well, you'll have to tune in to find out what that's about. How long a song by Ace. So let's start with steroids. Um, You know, we use a lot of advanced therapies, expensive therapies. You know, they are significantly changing the lives of our patients. We often escalate to such therapies um, with the hope of better disease control and even better, the option of simplifying therapy. There was once a spondylitis study that showed the data I'm going to show you now, but this is kind of disheartening. And the point is that uh, RA patients who are put on either targeted synthetics or biologic DMARTs, you know, and do well, you would think that they would be able to discontinue their steroids, the drug we shouldn't be on, but we use as a bridge therapy or temporizing therapy. In this study of 228 RA patients, 68% were on very low-dose glucocorticoids. 32%, therefore, were on no steroids at all. They looked at these people after three years of taking advanced therapies, and of the 68%, almost half of them are still on glucocorticoids, 32%. 23 had stopped their, their steroids, 20 5% never took steroids, and 20% are on and off. So if you consider the 20% who are, are on and off and the 32 who are still on, more than half of patients have been on steroids, even though they're getting advanced, expensive, successful therapies. Now, this study did not link steroid use with uh, actual disease activity measurements or a measure of drug success. So you can assume maybe that it's allowable that some of those people didn't respond well enough. But isn't it the point that you're going to use these advanced therapies and get people off of steroids? We don't do that because I think it's just sort of something we overlook and patients are happy to take them. It's something we need to think about. Great data on early arthritis comes from the Leiden Early Arthritis Clinic. In this study, they looked at the contribution of uh, ACPA positivity uh, to disease activity and obesity. So they had how many people? 649 RA patients. They showed that um, being obese in that clinic increased your DAS score um, significantly by 0.32. That if you were ACPA positive and obese, increase your DAS score significantly by 0.43. Being ACPA positive increased swollen joint counts 60%, tender joint counts 55%, and there was a mean CRP of 3.7 milligrams per liter, um, and that would be higher than people who are ACPA negative. Again, these are significant contributors to disease activity. Uh, An interesting study looked at whether or not telemedicine uh, and remote evaluations was the same as 
uh, face-to-face on-site evaluations. It's a small study, 78 patients, and, 80, and they had RA, and they were 83% CCP positive. And they looked at what happened when they did an evaluation within two weeks of the face-to-face visit. Uh, and they compared um, disease measures, mainly RAPID-3. So by RAPID-3, um, 27% were in remission uh, by telemedicine versus the DAS-CRP remission of 71% in the face-to-face visit and the DAS-ESR um, remission of 33%, showing a significant discordance. Now, they're not using the same measures, and they don't always behave the same. But basically, remission is remission. And they're making the case that the CAPA statistics showed moderate to low agreement between the measures done in the clinic and measures done on as an outpatient. Now, of course, you can't do DASH 28 and DASH, um, whether CRP or ESR, as an outpatient visit because it requires tender joint count, swollen joint count, and a simultaneously done CRP or SED rate. But they should have compared rapid three levels at the face-to-face visit. I like this report about the risk of fracture with CCP because it makes me think if there is a risk of fracture with CCP, why would that be? In this particular study of 1,148 patients who had acute pseudogout or CPPD disease, they were matched one to three with comparators and they were all old over 70 years of age. Yes, patients uh, with CPPD received more steroids and had more osteoporosis and osteoporosis therapy. But we're not talking big numbers here. We're talking like steroids in 18% of CPPD and, I don't know, 8% of the of the other ones. And osteoporosis therapies were, I don't want to say 10 versus 7%. But the point here was that, that if you had previously acute pseudogout, your risk of fracture, subsequent fracture, was one was 80% higher, almost twofold higher risk. The risk was highest for the wrist, and that, and that was a 3.6-fold higher risk. Uh, but arm and hip, you know, and all, the, all, all bones, they looked at, I think, four areas. Those were all also increased, and the question is, mechanistically, how does this happen? You could blame it on, st- first off, they're all older patients, right? So they're kind of primed maybe for more fractures. But the rate of osteoporosis therapy was a minority. Maybe they were undertreated. Maybe getting steroids, even intermittently, was a risk factor here. But uh, I don't historically think of a fracture risk in patients who have acute pseudogout or acute gout attacks. And maybe we should be thinking about that and counseling patients uh, on fall risk and fracture risk. Uh, we have seen, um, you know, associations between our inflammatory disorders and cancers. We haven't really seen that very well, and it's hard to prove in kids. This, this particular study looked at the Danish registries. You know, they have lots of very reliable registries. And patients, m- mothers who had maternal autoimmune disease and then had children, they looked at the risk of those children developing cancers. And it was a significant 25% increased risk, an odds ratio 1.25, with a higher rate of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, 52% higher, Burkett's lymphoma, 2.6-fold higher, and CNS tumors, 45% higher. Uh, 
Um, and when they just looked at just the women who had RA, they saw the same increased risk of childhood cancers. Um, so there's something to this story. Uh, and I'm, I'm sh- the only thing I can say that's good about this data is that the numbers are low for actual risk. So when they say a higher risk, you know, they're comparing low numbers in two different cohorts. But still, it is significantly elevated. The Korean database also looked at a risk of cancer amongst their patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And they compared uh, almost 1,800 patients with AS uh, in a one-to-four comparison with uh, healthy controls. They found that the AS patients, 9% developed cancer. Uh, and there was no overall increase in cancer in AS patients with a adjusted hazard ratio of 1.1. But there were a few cancers um, when you looked at them individually where that were higher in uh, AS patients. And that included uh, upper GI cancers, of hazard ratio 1.51, that was significant, and hematologic malignancies, a hazard ratio 2.4. You know, maybe what's going on here is that a lot of these kids are being treated with non-steroidals. We know non-steroidals do have, we talked about this a few podcasts ago, do have um, uh, the potential of lowering cancer risk. But why not these particular cancers? And again, you uh, other data suggests that NSAIDs do not lower uh, hematologic or GI cancers. Um, so colon cancer, yes, right? Head and neck tumors and breast and a few others. But so is this an NSAID effect uh, or are AS patients from Korea really at a higher risk? The question sometimes comes up. I have a um, gout patient who's having an attack. Should I start um, urate-lowering therapy with either fibuxostat, allopurinol, whatever, uh, or should I restart it to someone who was, had stopped it? And th- this particular meta-analysis of six, st- six randomized controlled trials, 445 patients showed no significant differences um, in any measure of what went on with their gout, especially with regard to the flare. So time to resolve the flare, risk of further flares, um, active gout beyond 30 days, again, no difference. Uh, again, they did receive urate-lowering therapy often with um, uh, prophylaxis. So another interesting report was in JAMA this week about the risk of gout. This is a, based on a UK... Um, the UK PRD or PRD link, can't remember the name of, this, of, the, of the data set, but uh, over 3,000 gout patients um, compared to the same uh, number in a control group, and they looked at flare rates based on baseline um, um, uric acid levels. So for those who had a uric acid level of 6 milligrams per liter or less, the rate was 10.6 per 1,000 patient years or one per 100 patient years, a very low risk. But as you go up, you know, in the sixes, it goes up to 40. In the sevens, it goes up to 82. In the eights, it goes up, and that's 8 to 8.9. It goes up to 101. In the nines, it goes to 125. And in the um, over 10, it goes up to 132. So that's like now one in 10 risk of developing a gout flare. Hospitalization rates were also astronomically high 
in patients with uric acid levels greater than 9 or greater than 10, the hospitalization rate was either 34-fold or 45-fold higher. Um, Again, I think this is important information that you can use in counseling the many people who you see who are reluctant to take therapy and prophylactic therapy or urate-lowering therapy. They'd rather roll the dice and have their third, fourth, fifth, you know, gout attack in the year and manage it how they like to manage it, which is often wrong and goofy, um, ill-advised, and a a little bit too late. Um, These data, you know, speak to actual risks that they will have the next year um, if they don't do something about their, their gout. Uh, and I, I think particularly scary is um, the hospitalization rates. Again, if you're over 9, 34-fold higher. If you're over 10, it's 45-fold higher. That's scary. Many of you in 2021 were, I think, quite excited by Karen Kostenbatter's presentation at ACR where she presented the results of the VITAL study showing you that supplementation with vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids um, could be associated with a lowering of the risk of autoimmune disease. Uh, And now I'm going to present the follow-up to that. So let's go back to the vital study first. It was a study that was designed to look at if you gave 2,000 units of uh, vitamin D a day or if you took, I can't remember the dose of omega-3s, and they followed a large number of patients, 20,000 plus patients, uh, for 5.3 years. The study was done to see if the supplements would lower the risk of cardiovascular events or cancer, and it proved to be not the case. And this was published in the New England, in New England Journal. Dr. Kostenbatter's report um, in 2021 said, guess what? There was a significant lowering, a 17% lowering of the risk um, that was, I, I think that's the number, um, with, let's see, hmm. oh, I'm going to have to read this. I, 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 I'm sorry, I have to get the facts straight here. Um, yeah, let's, the idea was vitamin D significantly lowered the risk and omega-3 fatty acids almost lowers the risk. So what happened was at the end of the study, they stopped their vitamin D and their uh, and their fish oil therapy, and they followed around 85% of the patients for another two years, and now we saw a flip, meaning that if you had stopped vitamin D, you are no longer protected from incident autoimmune disease, where the hazard ratio was basically one, but if you um, stop the um, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, it was now six, uh, uh, significant, and that was a 17% lowering that was significant. The point here is that if you want to have some benefit from vitamin D, you need to continue it and can't take it intermittently or you can't stop it and assume there's a benefit long-term. Um, and that maybe there's a long-term effect of omega-3 fatty acids, if they have to go off of it, maybe they can get away with that. That's one interpretation. I look at this data and I'm saying, I'm not sure I believe it. Uh, you know, many of you know, I know I'm a, I'm a curmudgeon about vitamin D data. It's associated with everything and, and cures nothing. So when I find that vitamin D can prevent autoimmune disease, 
That's interesting. Vitamin D has significant immune effects uh, above and beyond what it does to bone. And we certainly know that uh, fish oil therapy is anti-inflammatory. But can you make the leap that routine um, pedestrian use of these supplements will lower the risk of autoimmune disease? Let's make an autoimmune disease out to be something really simple, which I don't think it is. Uh, So... You can judge the data for yourself. It's actually published in Arthritis, Arthritis and Rheumatology. Two more reports. Um, I like this one um, about the, um, and this was, I think, in Arthritis Care and Research, about the association of inflammatory arthritis with scleroderma and systemic sclerosis. In, in their study, uh, I want to say it was over 1,000 patients that they followed with systemic sclerosis, 33% had evidence of inflammatory arthritis. When they looked at the associations um, between having inflammatory arthritis with scleroderma, you are at higher risk, significantly higher risk for the following. Diffuse scleroderma, 33% higher. Joint contractures or tendon friction rubs, 70% higher. Myositis, a doubling, 211% higher. Sicka symptoms, 57% higher. And having inflammatory arthritis was negatively associated with pulmonary arterial hypertension, but that makes sense, doesn't it? In that PAH is associated more with limited disease crest and not with diffuse disease, and inflammatory arthritis is associated with diffuse disease. What was not important here was U1 RNP antibodies or rheumatoid factor, but CCP was seen more in the inflammatory arthritis patients, albeit at a very low rate, 7.5%, versus those who didn't have it, inflammatory arthritis, where it was only seen in 1.5%. So inflammatory arthritis, the question is, if you treat it aggressively, does it change the outcomes for systemic sclerosis? You tell me. Our last report is about a topic I like to talk about, difficult to treat RA. This is another cohort study. We talked about it last week, a Greek study showing a 20% um, incidence of difficult to treat RA in a large car RA cohort. That was, in my opinion, higher than what I'd seen in many other studies where it was about 10 or 11%. But here's another study where they had a total of almost 1,500 patients and they found 16 or 17% that met the the ULAR definition for difficult to treat RA, D2TRA. But when they came up with another definition of polyrefractory RA, it was a much smaller number. It was only 40 out of the 1,500, that's 2.7%. And to be a polyrefractory, that meant that you had to have failed four lines of biologic therapy, TNF, IL-6, abatacept, B-cells, so that that made you a different subset. Turns out that if you were a polyrefractory person, you were more likely to have have higher DASs, higher CRPs, and have a history of smoking, 20% versus 4%. They also went and did ultrasound on a subset of the D2-TRA patients, about 100 of their 200-plus patients, um, and they identified them as having either persistent inflammatory disease or non-inflammatory disease based on ultrasound evidence of synovitis. And you know what? It was about split. 57% had persistent inflammatory uh, RA, uh, and 43% had non-inflammatory RA. And the non-inflammatory RAs are are pain and fibromyalgia patients. The inflammatory RAs have higher inflammatory indices. And hence, this identification means that of all the patients who have D2-TRA, 
at least half of them may benefit from more aggressive uh, systemic therapies, but that half of them won't. And you need to decide either by ultrasound or by exam or by clinical parameters that they are in this non-inflammatory group. And, you know, you need to talk to them about what is bothering them and figure out if fibromyalgia is in play. That's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Go to the website to check out these citations and more. Next week, we will do some Ask Kush Anything recordings. Take care. Bye.